welcome to Man Pepper, a baseball podcast, straight baseball banter. Coming in episode 20, that's Spanish for 20, with your hosts, Jake and Chris. What's going on, man? What's up, Jake? How's it going? Good, good. I'm ready for a nice uh, new brew I'm bringing to the to the pod today, so I'm excited for that. I got a new one too, but let's get our guest involved. I don't know if he's uh, going to partake in the what are you drinking, but we're excited to welcome Gary Burnham to the podcast. Gary, South Windsor, Connecticut native, Clemson University alum, drafted three separate times uh, in his life out of high school, and then I believe out of his junior year and then senior year from Clemson. Uh, so he eventually was drafted by the Phillies in the 22nd round, made it as high as AAA, spent a lot of time in AAA, played overseas for a, a bunch of years, over 1,500 professional hits, lifetime, basically 300 hitter in the pros. So Gary, thanks for joining us, man. We're excited to have you. Awesome, dude. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, yeah, super cool. It sounds it sounds pretty neat when you read off all that stuff. Um, I remember that guy well. So you're like the you're like the Ichiro of Connecticut. <laughs> I guess so, man. When you add up all those hits, it's like, uh, wow, that's a lot. Fifteen hundred and fourteen hits, Gary. One hundred fifty five professional jacks. Two ninety three batting average and like eight thirty five OPS. I'm going through your baseball reference page. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, man. And you played for what? You you retired when you were thirty five. You started yeah. at twenty two. Long career. 14 years, man. Yeah. 14, 14 years of just grinding out and figuring out a way to get a hit. I'm trying every time I was up and just, it's never easy. <laughs> never yeah. easy. Well, you did it for a long time. I wanted to ask you when I was looking through the page. So you got drafted in the 22nd round out of high school. Yeah. You elected to go to Clemson then junior year drafted in the 40th round, came back your senior year and went again in the 22nd. What was it like being, in my opinion, relatively high draft pick out of high school. What was that decision like, whether to actually go at that point or go play at Clemson? It was kind of easy for me, honestly. I, you know, I grew up in a baseball family. Uh, my grandfather played in the Brooklyn Dodgers organization as an 18-year-old and some of their D-level teams, which, you know, back in the day, there was a lot of minor league teams when he was 18. Uh, my uncle played in the Brave system for a bit. Um, you know, and he went out of high school. He was a fifth rounder out of high school. Just was overmatched, immature, young. And uh, my mom um, and dad both said, man, the best move you can do is go to college. You know, you don't want to kind of fall into that same boat that your uncle did. And, um, you know, go there for the experience, get more mature, get stronger. And, you know, if you're good enough and it's there again, you know, you're going to be right where you needed to be anyway. Um, so don't miss out on, on that experience. And when, and when I went to Clemson, you know, that's a top 10 school in the country, College World Series appearance. I did two of them. And, um, you know, it's the best decision I made. I don't I would never really suggest a kid go right out of high school unless it was a life changing type of situation, you know, financially. And Clemson, man, that's right down. So I'm down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah. And we have uh, a vacation rental piece of property on Lake Hartwell. So oh, yeah. we're going to the Clemson games. Uh, football, oh, yeah. that is beautiful area. Great campus. Do you get down oh, yeah. there at all now? Or? Not really. We've had a couple alumni. We've had a couple alumni um, kind of get-togethers in the fall. Uh, there's one coming up for Jack Leggett, who was there for 23 seasons in January. Uh, looking forward to it. Always a great place to go. Uh, the, the the landscape there is just this beautiful. It's you know like Connecticut in the fall. It's just it's just it's just a beautiful place. Um, 
and every time we go down there it's it's gorgeous weather so you just you can't beat it we love going down there but we're not there all the time maybe once every few years at most nice nice well well gary again thanks for coming on we'd like to have a a a beverage i don't know if you're going to partake but i i want to show chris and you i'm going with legion brewery it's out of charlotte i'll give you the can it's the lunar days so I'm changing it up. It's a Belgian-style wheat ale today. Uh, I've been on the juicy IPA bandwagon for a while, but I, I really wanted to change it up. So I'm going to crack it right now and see how it tastes. It's good for you. Absolutely, man. It's, I mean, beer is big business. I mean, it's like there's a new brewery going up, it seems like, in every city you know, every couple months. You know, my brother-in-law is actually putting one up uh, here in the area, and uh, the numbers are amazing if you can do it right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There. Dime a dozen, but if you got the good stuff, you're going to yeah. do well, at least locally. Absolutely. Right? Yep. So, Jake, same wavelength, man. I've been on the IPA train, too. I know you kind of mixed it up last week with bourbon, but I really haven't deviated much from the the IPA or the Pale Ales. I've got um, Beard Brewing Company down in Groton, Connecticut. Oh, yeah. And all right. Connecticut Casual is the name. Nice light Pilsner, 5.1%. I feel like I'm a, I'm a broken record with these beers during the summer, but it is a great <laughs> summer beer. Uh, and I do like, you know, the the craft beer Pilsner style. Yeah. Obviously, like a Miller Lite, Coors Light are technically a Pilsner, but you get some of these better beers and crisp and refreshing. Can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. Quick segue before we go into more baseball. So last week, I decided to go out with a buddy to this local biker bar on a Thursday night <laughs> called Iron Thunder. Um, they do dollar fifty domestic cans in a can. They literally just crack the can and give you the can for a buck fifty. I mean, we had like three beers. We watched some preseason football. Threw the girl, you know, a, a twenty. It, the whole bill was like eight bucks. She got a good tip. We hung out for an hour. I was like, that's a pretty good little spot. I don't care. I don't care where you're at for buck fifty. <laughs> no doubt, man. Yeah, I'll take a buck fifty beer. Yeah. Give me a bush light for a buck fifty. <laughs> I'll drink it. I'm yingling. Yingling. You go to a big like stadium, they're like freaking 14, 15 bucks these days. So all right, let's get in let's get into some baseball talk. So yeah. Gary, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with Chris just sent me an Instagram video, and I'm sure you're you're a baseball guy, so you're probably familiar with everyone throwing like hundred miles per hour these days, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, how the hell do you say that guy's, guy's name on the Twins, Chris? Yoan Duran, I believe. I could be butchering the first name. Probably the last right. name, too. But uh, I've been following him this year because I do have him on my fantasy team. And the guy's, his stats are ridiculous. He's not technically the closer, but I think he's the best bullpen arm that they have. One of the best in the league this year, actually. But yeah, he just threw a 100-mile-an-hour splitter. First guy ever to be recorded <laughs> throwing a quote-unquote off-speed pitch triple digits and Jake was saying how'd the catcher even catch it not even how did the guy come I mean Verdugo was like he had no chance he missed he missed it by three feet but the catcher like went to catch it and like hit right here like he almost like broke his palm it just looked awkward I don't understand how these guys are making any contact but as a hitter one who is very successful like yourself what the hell would you do with that approach how would you even attack that I mean, you know, the old adage, the old timers would say, man, you know how to hit a good off-speed pitch, man, don't miss the fastball. You know, they, it's just guys are guessing, man. Guys are anticipating location. Guys are anticipating pitch. And they're good enough to say, listen, man, if it comes, I'm going to be ready and I'm going to barrel it up. 
And if you could do that three times out of four times you're up, one of them falls. You know, the old saying, one for three and a walk, it's in the Hall of Fame. It's like the numbers are the numbers are there if you just stay patient, wait for that one cookie, and don't miss it. That's where the better players are. That's where that's where they are in their mind, is they're not missing the cookie that they're served on a golden platter at those levels. They're not missing the pitch. And that's the difference. They're not fouling it off. They're hitting it hard somewhere. And when they get it, they do it. But, you know, you're throwing a 100-mile-an-hour splitter, man. There's no there's no offensive approach that's going to make hard contact with that. It's just if it's located, no one's hitting it. You might foul it off. And then you got to pray for the pitch you've been been, been looking looking for. That's That's how you do it. Yeah. You don't get it, you got to just tip your cap. But when you do get it, you can't miss it. We were talking with uh, Jimmy DeShane a few weeks ago, who, yeah. who's, who connected us with you. You think you guys played a little bit together, or at least crossed paths a bunch in your oh, yeah. career. Oh, yeah. Jimmy, Phillies, Blue Jays, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But he was saying he could he could hit about maybe up to like 92, 93 with respect to a fastball without really having to guess, right? If he knew that was sort of like top velo. Yeah. He wouldn't have to guess up there and he could at least still do some damage or fight off whatever else came his way. Yeah. But after that point, it was like he had he had to guess or else it was just a complete overmatch. Yeah. What was your approach with respect to guess hitting or, or reaction? You know, I, I say this all the time. I mean, you guys asking, yeah, man, how do you hit 98? How, how do you hit 95 plus? I used to love the guys with 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 blazing fastballs because their their egos are so big. You know what you're getting. I mean, these guys challenge the hell out of you. You know, a guy that throws 100 miles an hour, you can promise when you're up to that plate, you're going to see four or five fastballs, you know, unless he gets you to two strikes, and then he might try to throw that slider or get you chasing somewhere out of the zone. But the guys with blazing fastballs were my favorite to hit. You know, I grew up with um, the Fernando Rodneys, the um, Matt Andersons, the Billy Koches, who was my roommate at Clemson. You know, these guys were 97, 98. That was kind of like the top end speed back, you know, 15 yeah. years ago. Um, but I loved hitting those guys, you know, the hard throwing Dominican guy, you know, they always, they, they had a super reputation for just having incredible arms, arm strength, but, but I loved hitting them, man, because you knew what you're getting. And it's true that those Greg Maddox's, the Dave Cones of the world, those guys are hard to hit, man, because they just keep you off balance. They keep you guessing, they keep you doubting. And it's just enough to miss your barrel. It's, it's very hard to hit those guys. But I loved it. I was a wicked good fastball hitter. I crushed those guys because I knew what I was getting. It's very easy to hit if you know what's coming. I felt the same way, obviously, on a much smaller scale or smaller stage, right? Um, yeah. We were talking about it a, a few episodes ago, though. When you when you faced a guy in college who could get to 92, 93, they were going to be in love with their fastball. And oh, yeah. unless it had a ton of run or movement, like I could sit on that all day. I'd rather face a guy like that and just gear up for it, put a good swing on it than someone that's sitting 87, but with like three or four different pitches that can locate them. I'd rather face the 93 or 94. Seven yeah, I, what I, I was, I was big on, I was big on really watching what the pitcher had confidence in that night because I knew if, if the pitcher was locating his fastball, he was going to it when he needed a strike. If the pitcher had trouble with his, off-speed pitches, locating them, I knew he didn't have confidence in them that night. So I knew he wasn't going to throw them when it got in a tight spot. You follow me? Yeah. yeah. So I would watch and watch and watch, and I'd, I'd play probabilities in my mind. I'd say to myself, 
this kid hasn't thrown a single slider for a strike in three innings. But, you know, you'll see them in warm-ups, you know, with their glove. They're going to flip their glove for the curveball, pull it back for the changeup, wave it for the fastball. So you say, okay, this guy's got three pitches. You know, then you look at the, the – you ask the coach, hey, what's this guy got? Oh, he's a fastball, slider, change guy. So then I'm watching like hell because I'm saying, all right, how many of these pitches has he thrown for a strike if nobody swung at him with his off-speed stuff? You know, if he's throwing seven out of ten off-speed pitches for a ball, if the, if the batters don't swing at it, I'm saying to myself – eliminate these pitches just just go for the fastball because i'm playing i'm playing the fact that the pitcher doesn't have confidence in some of the stuff he's throwing now if he's locating his off-speed pitches and i could tell that he's very confident throwing it now my my approach changes a little bit when i get runners in scoring position you know now sometimes i actually look for some of these spinning pitches and say to myself any fastball in the zone i'm crushing it any elevated off-speed pitches i'm crushing it and then as you move up the ladder, the margin of error shrinks so small that you, you have to be on point with your approach and capitalize or else your problem, your chances go way down because the, the, the players are that the pitchers are that good where they, you just missed your opportunity and then it dwindles and that's in, and then it's over. How do you eliminate something like a changeup though? Like the guys with the good changeups, the whole point is it looks like a fastball and then it just falls off the table. So I get, I get trying to eliminate like the curve or the slider if you think they're not throwing it for a strike. But a pitch like a change, are you looking when you played and trying to do that? Like you're not swinging at something that starts below your belt, essentially. Yeah, you got you got to look at height. A lot of times with changeups, you you go with height, and then you could slightly see as the hand comes through the zone, as a hand goes goes through, you can slightly see the hand turn over. You got to have real good vision, man, to see that release point and the way the hand kind of turns right as it gets pitched. And you got to have real good visual acuity to see the spin on the ball as fast as you can. And then depending on the height of it is going to depend on whether I'm swinging at it or not. You know, at an off-speed pitch that starts at my eye level, I know it's going to drop into the zone and hang. You know, and that's I was two for two off Roger Clemens one spring training. And um, I, I, I nailed the split finger fastball, man. I knew he was going to throw it. And it hung, and I was like, bam, I hit it. And I was like, hell yeah. And then uh, I did the same thing on my second at-bat against him. I just knew with two strikes he's going to a split. And I was totally guessing he threw it, and I was ready. But That's awesome. But the, the height of the pitch matters a lot for me when it's off speed. But a guy with a real nasty changeup that really it's, – it's spotted right in the fastball angle where, the, where it comes out of the pitcher's hand at the same angle as a fastball – it's you, you. It's trouble, man. There's not. There's no hitters that really do well with those, unless you're totally guessing, and you have yep. the discipline to just totally give up on the fastball. Now, there's some hitters. There was a guy, Jeff Manto, who played in the minors forever. Really good hitter. He was a manager for a long time. He used to he used to hit off the curveball. He's like, dude, I just look curveball, and then I just, I just adjusted fastball. I know it sounds backwards, but he goes, that just helped me stay the other way almost. And I was like, dude, that's good for you, man. I can relate to it again at the college level. I felt like I was always looking off speed to go right center or if they hung it yeah. in, I was just going to lift and separate and try to punch it out to, to left field. If you, if you got quick enough hands, you got to find a way to completely relax your brain to allow your yeah. eyes to gauge the pitch. Too many hitters don't live in real time. They don't live in the moment. Their mind is ahead of the moment. And they actually get themselves out. They screw themselves. That's the problem. Yeah. I talk a lot about it. I mean, it's all it's all trying to be in the moment, man. So it's interesting you say that because, 
just a few minutes ago, you were talking about one of the ways you could spit on a changeup is seeing the arm action right at the end, right? Yes. And when you said that, it kind of blew my mind a little bit because I just never had that capacity as a hitter to be like, oh, I see his arm do this and I am actually have time in whatever 0.2 seconds to implement that into my swing. Yeah. And then you just said you got to turn your mind off as a hitter, which I agree with. So what what type of training can possibly go into that to where you've taken so many reps, not just off of Iron Mike machine or even BP, because guys aren't throwing changeups in BP. Like, how do you get to that point where your mind is able to essentially see that little bit of arm action on a changeup and actually know how to react to that in a game? Number one, you, you got to have incredible visual acuity, like I said, you know. And, and, and you're talking to a guy that had two laser eye surgeries so I can improve my vision, you know, and I'll talk about that, how it was a mistake I made in my career, you know, getting LASIK eye surgery, I feel was a mistake. It, it, it set me a step backwards, but I, I would, I would focus on um, the guys at the very top, do a lot of breathing techniques to stay in the moment, um, to really back themselves up in time to allow their, to allow themselves to trust themselves athletically rather than letting their emotions kind of get the best of them and all the anticipation and doubt and what you think you're seeing is not really what you're seeing. You have to really allow yourself to see the ball. You know, it's like Pete Rose said, see ball, hit ball. He's right. Like with, when I had two strikes on myself, I used to tell myself, just see the ball, just see the ball. And once you actually allow yourself to just see, you trust. If you, if you're tight, you don't allow yourself to see, you're not going to trust. It's almost like you're making up and you see that when guys swing at like that curveball that bounces two feet in front of the plate. And you say, why the hell did he swing at that? I'll tell you why he swung at it. You see, he created a story before the pitch was actually thrown in his mind. He didn't allow himself to actually see it, read it, and realize it was a bad pitch. You see what I'm saying? The anxiety oh, yeah. got to him. And it's real. At the very top, it's real. You have to figure out ways to really battle that. And it's breathing techniques. It's a million reps. Some guys run. I do. I was a cardio guy. I'd ride the bike for freaking forty-five minutes to an hour during the game, just to just to know that when I was up there DHing, I was sweating completely, totally relaxed, because that anticipation, that that roar of the crowd, just it just baseball is the craziest game. You got to actually be the opposite of it. Yeah. And if you're not relaxed and you're tense, it's going to work against you in this game, and that's that's one of the biggest battles. That's why you know the. That's why I personally believe like they have all these external metrics they're measuring. And I've said this to tons of guys, the, the metrics they're missing are the internal metrics. You know, what, what is the, what is the heart rate of the best clutch hitters in the big leagues with a three, two count bases loaded game tied in the bottom of ninth? You know, what's this guy's perspiration levels? What's this guy's brain activity? You follow me? I mean, I know. That's oh yeah, deep. yeah. Are we gonna get? To, I, I would love to get some some neuro things and helmets and like that. I'm, be the I'm next just saying. Thing. It sounds crazy, but we live in a crazy world because I'm saying to myself, everybody's measuring these external metrics, but when you look back at the greatest players you played with, there was something they had internally in their mind that other players didn't, and we called those guys like this guy's got ice running through his veins, right? Yep. This guy is calm, cool, and collective. This nothing affects this guy. This pitcher's money, no matter what. And you you see these robotic type athletes that 
somehow, some way, they just know how to be completely clutch and be in the moment. That's actually the metrics I want to, I want to, I hope they come out with what's, what's going on internally in this guy's body that, that, and then, and then draw um, a correlation. Well, right. That, Cause I, I would love to know, I would love to see in real time, the heart rate of someone, you know, oh, yeah. bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth. That would just, it would be the coolest stat. That's what but I'm then saying. The next question, but then the next question is like, okay, it's probably not going to be a shocker that the best players maybe have a little bit of a lower heart rate, maybe, le- maybe less brain activity in that moment. But then how do you get, how do you actually take an average player and start improving on those things? Cause that's, I, I think maybe some of it's going to come with practice and preparation and just feeling confident in yourself. Right. Because yeah. that's, they say the game slows down. I think it's true. Some of, some of that has to go beyond just baseball practice. If we're going to talk about actually lowering a heart rate, like quieting your mind, right? That's not just a baseball training. Yeah. A lot of yeah. the guys at the tippity top do a lot of breathing techniques to open up your blood vessels. And, um, it sounds crazy, but man, there's a lot of like, um, a lot of, um, just, just deep breathing techniques and stuff like that, where guys are constantly figuring out how to slow themselves down, you know, and it's true and it freaking works. Well, it's not crazy. We were talking about breathing on the last podcast we did with our buddy, Corey Mascara, who's the yeah. pitching coach at Wake Forest. And uh, he was talking through some of the stuff he does personally as a coach to make sure he's sort of in the moment each day for his players. Yeah. So like, what are some of the things either you did or your guys you played with did or guys that are playing now are doing with respect to breathing techniques and just trying to, you know, essentially calm themselves down and be prepared to play. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys, what they'll do, you know, some, for some guys it's music. Um, you know, I was an artist too. Uh, so I would draw a lot before games, um, just to really set my mind in a, in a real calm place. Um, where nobody would really bother me and you just kind of have to really be in the moment to, to paint and draw, you know, and, and, and that was something that I like to do before the games um, just to really stay calm. I also was a guy that used a, a huge sense of humor to keep me relaxed. You know, I was real nervous, fidgety. Me and this guy, Bobby Derula, who lives in Connecticut from Greenwich, great guy. We used to call ourselves the paranoid hitters club where you see, you know, a lot of guys, um, like when we played in Asia, they're chain smokers, dude, they're constantly smoking a cigarette because they're just, they're just nervous. It's really nervous, rickety energy. You know, some guys, you know, baseball players spit, they're chewing the, the dip the every two seconds. We used to just call ourselves paranoid hitters, afraid we'd never get a hit again. We'd laugh because we'd say, dude, we got 1200 hits right now. Like we're going to get another hit. Mm-hmm. But it was just that constant battle of just trying to, um, I was a big cardio guy. Like I told you guys, when I'm at the stadium, I was, I was trying to do as much cardio as I can to sweat, calm my brain down, feel that sense of relaxation. And I draw before the games, I, you know, do my artwork. Some guys it's for some guys, it's music. For some guys it's, you know, heavy metal. Maybe they, 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 they like to get themselves, they have to zone out with something, but that's a big part of, uh, performance is that that piece of it because all the players have the natural talent and then you're just you're just trying to figure out ways to get that that upper hand on on the on the competition and it's whatever guys really really can do i was i was big on once the video all started coming out i was big on watching highlight videos of myself not actually the failures of myself so i would watch home runs that i hit doubles that i hit because i want to put my mind back in that memory of what it felt like to do well 
not what it felt like to do it wrong. So I was a big feeling guy. I wanted to put myself back in those feelings and I believe it worked. Especially when I got a little older. I love that. We didn't, at least when I played, like there was not really any video I could watch of myself, at least from yeah. a game. You could kind of video yourself in BP and, and look back on that. Like I felt good this round or whatever and try to get back. I love that approach. I feel like a lot of guys are probably going to look at their failures. Like, what did I do wrong? What could I get better? There's probably a benefit to that, but it definitely seems like it makes a lot of sense to look at the good stuff too, to be like, I did this. Yeah. Think about when you watch a hitting video with like the typical coach, he says, all right, man, come on in the showroom, whatever. We're going to watch some of your at bats. And what are they really going to coach when they're going to say, okay, on this pitch right here, you reached on an outside fastball, you rolled over to it. You know, here's a four, six, three double play. And so you start seeing, you know, here's one where you dropped your backside a little bit. You hit a flare up to the left fielder and you're out, you know. So these are actually the images you're putting in your brain. Yeah. You know, and the coach is offering suggestions. Well, you want to want to stay on that one and go to left for that one. OK, you know, oh, you want to get your top hand on the ball a little bit more. You want to get your barrel on it. You want to drive that one to the left center gap. But when, when has a coach ever walked you in and said, dude, let me show you how amazing you are. Bro, here's a 3-2 fastball down Broadway. You just jacked for a grand slam. Here's a double in the gap off the toughest pitcher in our league. See, so that, that's confidence boosting. That's the player watching himself saying, hell yeah, I can do this. Like, this is what it feels like to be amazing. And when you really look at guys that, um, you know, are hot in the zone, crushing the ball, they never describe mechanical things. It's always emotional things. The ball looks like a grapefruit. The ball looks like a beach ball. Things are slowing down. I'm seeing the ball well. You follow me? Yes. But but yet when players are in slumps, everyone goes to mechanics. Oh, he's dropping his backside. He's casting his hands. He's stepping in the bucket. He's closing himself off. And they have all these little checks things. And I, I kind of say to myself, no, nah, man, the, the, first, the biggest issue is, is what's going on in your internal talk. And what, what's going on with like your nervousness and your, and your, your, your levels of um, doubt. You follow me? Yes. Because behind all that is the athlete. Yes. And, and the, it's like my buddy, Howie Clark, who um, it's like my buddy, Howie Clark, who was the batting coach for the Baltimore Orioles um, a few years back, you know, and I, I had a couple little leaguers with me. I said, Howie, what, we were at Fenway Park. I go, what do you, what do you work on most with these guys? You know, that's when they had that uh, first baseman Davis who wasn't hitting well. Remember Chris him? Davis. Yeah, he, he hit a bunch of bombs, and then he kind of just went south on himself. And I'm like, because Howie, I mean, as you know, these guys are big leaguers, and they can just tell you to go screw yourself. I mean, what are you going to do, right? You're a big league hitting coach, talking to guys making $20 million. You're in the batting cage with them. What, what the hell are you going to tell them? Put your back elbow up? These guys are going to laugh at you and say, bro, get the hell out of here. Just throw me some BP and shut up, you know? Yep. So he's like, dude, you know what we work on the most with these guys is getting out of their own way. Because they're in, they're incredible athletes, and it's all the stuff that goes on in your brain that stops them from become from being the incredible athlete. You know, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, dude, that that is you're spot on, man. Because as you move up the ladder and the competition is is incredible, you'll never tell who the greatest players are in BP. You got to start watching the games. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the college level, you can pretty much watch batting practice and say, yeah, this kid mashes, dude. He, you know, drives the ball. This kid's pretty good. And eh, that kid's an out. This kid's got no chance. He's weak. But as you move up to the top, you, everybody's legit. 
you know, it's yes. six o'clock, everyone's legit. Right. So, so Gary, I want to touch on one thing that you said earlier, which I, I like the idea of, Hey, these guys need to get out of their own head and you got to breathe. You got to just let your body and all the mechanical things that you're, you're done as an athlete. How do you explain, and this is probably the fifth time we brought up this major leaguer, Javi Baez. So super athletic. Everyone, like the guy's just insane. He literally, like, I don't think he's in a slump right now. He's actually hitting pretty well. But he's so notorious for swinging. He swung at like a 52-foot slider that was never even remotely a strike. It bounced and went over the catcher's head for a strike three. I just, I don't know. I mean, I have my own take. I'm, he's just so aggressive and he's totally guessing at that point, but I don't know. What do you, yeah. what do you take on that? Just your input from what you've kind of said already. It's like, I think it's people's tolerance levels for what they believe is acceptable and not acceptable. So like if, if, and, and, you know, I'll tell you this story, Charlie Manuel, one of the uh, Phillies coaches, I don't know if you remember that guy. Oh yeah, of course. We, we were hitting in the, um, in the batting cages in spring training, it was myself, Ryan Howard, uh, Jimmy Rollins, and he kept throwing the balls and he kind of, he just stopped behind the L screen and he, he, he talks really slurred English. He's kind of a little oh, bit yeah. tough to understand. And he says, he says, Hey man, he goes, you know something fellas? He goes, you gotta be really dumb to be a good hitter. And we're, we're kind of all looking at each other like what in the hell is, where's he going with this? And he's like, man, he's like, you just got to be really dumb. He goes, you got to have the ability to just screw it all up on one pitch and hit that next pitch over the wall for a home run, man, if it's down the middle. He goes, but a lot of guys can't do that, man. They're going to swing at that pitch in the dirt, and then they're screwed the rest of the at-bat when that guy puts one right down the middle because they're too smart. He goes, that's why you got to be a little dumb to be a good hitter. (laughs) <laughs> and you know, I, I was just—I was kind of shaking my head. I was like, you know what, this guy's spot on, man. Because it—and to Javi Baez's point, not that he's dumb; he's probably genius. That you can swing at a forty-five-foot breaking ball, and then hit the next pitch five hundred and fifty feet for a three-run home run. Yeah, because he has the ability to just live in the moment, erase what just happened, and realize that. The pitcher's not keeping track of the, of, the, of, the, of the event that just happened either. I can promise you the pitcher didn't mean to spike a 45-foot breaking ball. You know, they meant to locate it, but they didn't. So they're in the same boat. You follow yeah. me? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So I, 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 just, I just think that certain players have the ability to just wash it out of their brain and live in the moments as they happen. I always thought like a guy like Rafael Palmeiro was like that. I used to watch him. He was my favorite hitter growing up. I used to watch him on the Orioles swing at a split in the dirt. And I'm like, man, if that, that pitcher's going to throw it again, he better not swing at it. And then he did, for some reason, they just throw it down the middle and he just drives it for a home run, and, you know, the, the, the pitch later. And, and I, actually, I actually got to that point in my career understanding what that really meant as a hitter. You know, when you're up there hitting and you say to yourself, see, as a hitter, you think the pitcher knows what you're thinking. They don't. They don't know what you're thinking. So when you when I faced Phil Hughes, who was a pitcher on the uh, Yankees oh, yeah. coming up in Double A, you know he threw me a breaking ball that I says to myself, "Holy shit!" The spin on that and the way it bit, I was like, "Dude, I don't think I'll be able to hit it if he throws it again." 
but I was old enough and smart enough to know that I just says, eh, if something spins, I'm not, I'm not, sw- I'm not swinging. You know what I mean? So then he throws a fastball and you just get a hit on it, you know, and you're just like, <laughs> but when I was young, you, you just simply believe the pitcher knows what they're, they're, you're thinking. It's, it's like the hitter that walks back to the dugout and says to you coming in to the batter's box, Hey, watch out for this guy's breaking ball. He's got a, he's got a nasty one. No, nah, man, that's not the information I wanted to hear. The guy coming from the plate that just punched out on that nasty breaking ball should say, bro, hit this fastball over the fence. Yeah. Like, don't even put that in your brain. You know what I mean? That's a great point. Yeah. And, and, and But at the youngest levels, they do that. Hey, this guy's – watch out for this guy's split finger fastball. Hey, this guy gets you to two strikes. He's going to throw you a slider. Watch out for it. I'm shaking my head. The guys at the top would say to that guy, shut the fuck up, man. Within the first two fastballs I see, one's going in the gap. So I'm never even going to get to that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if they if they do get to that point, then they'll make note of it. You know, it was like Kirk Gibson in the World Series when he said Eckersley goes to his slider every time he gets a guy um, 3-2. If you watch that old video. And he, he, he believed it. And he freaking jacked it. Did you always approach hitting this way in terms of like the mental aspect and – I, what I'm getting from you is positive thinking, right? You were saying Absolutely. you watch highlights of yourself. Yes. So that was literally innate in you, or did someone teach that to you at a young age? I, lear- I learned it, man. I learned it because I, I, I drew a quick correlation pretty quickly as I, as I moved up the ladder of when, why I was doing, why I wasn't hitting the ball well and why I was hitting the ball well. My, my weight didn't change. My workouts weren't changing. Um, my, the bat length wasn't changing. The ounces weren't changing. The ball wasn't changing. It was the stuff I was telling myself as I was, as I was performing, that's what was changing, you know? And, and as we moved up the ladder and you, you sit, you start saying to yourself, you're like, all right, I trust my swing. I got a great swing. I got super fast hands. I can hit the ball a mile. Why can't I capitalize when these pitchers are throwing their fastballs and why am I missing them? Why am I you know, why am I making outs? And as you get older, what, what starts to happen is the best hitting coaches will start saying to you, man, stop getting yourself out. Dude, you're getting yourself out. The pitcher's not getting you out. You're getting yourself out. So then you start saying, damn, I'm accountable for this. Like why? And you start realizing that, man, it's, 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 it's what I'm telling myself. It's the seconds in between the pitches. It's not being able to focus in the moment. And it's really giving away my strength and, compromising it for the pitcher's strength you know and that's a whole nother piece of the puzzle i would always talk about um because when when you look at at when you look at younger levels of baseball they'll always tell you what the other guy um uh, strengths and weaknesses are okay this pitcher throws a fastball slide this is a fastball slider guy and then um the pitcher says then the pitcher scouting report on you is well this guy crushes sliders well, at the very top, if you crush sliders and his best pitch is a slider, you're still getting sliders because at the very top, everyone plays to their strengths. They're not trying to cover their weaknesses. You follow me? They're just waiting yeah. for somebody to get into their strength. If, if, if I'm facing a really nasty pitcher that night that loves throwing um, split finger fastballs, but I'm frigging eight for 10 off of the last split finger fastballs I've seen, I'm still getting split finger fastballs. Yeah. It's not that they're not throwing them to me. I'm, I'm watching that pitcher's strengths that night. He's pitching to his strengths. I'm hitting to my strength. Whoever makes the mistake loses. That's how it gets played at the very top. 
and and that's and that's how some of the better batting coaches describe this all to me. They're like, dude, it's just about patience and waiting for a mistake. And when you get the mistake, if you're not on time with it and you're not on the barrel with it, you've missed the opportunity. And and that's that's basically how 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 it happens up at the top. That's that's how I see it. Dude, I remember that Phil Hughes curveball, by the way, that you were just talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah. That thing when he came up with the Yanks and like as a rookie year in the first couple of years, that thing was it would come out of his hand and like go up two feet and then bite down like three feet. Like Z, never, like Zito. Yeah. I, I used to never it, it used to look like thing. yeah, guys like that. It used to, it used to look like there was an a visible roof um in between the pitcher and the catcher, and it hits a roof and then just goes down. And like it hits something and then just bites sharp down. You almost think the ball hit something. And you're like, man, the, the the bite on this is incredible. You know? Pavetta's got one like that. He's struggled yeah. at times this year, but he's fastball curveball. You don't see a lot of guys like that anymore that are literally two pitches, fastball curveball. And, you know, he's made a pretty good big league career with that repertoire. It, yeah, it, so. see, it seems like the differential is a big deal now. You know, throw your 98, yeah. but you need a 75, you know, to really play games with the batter. Yes. You know, and that's all. Yeah. One, one thing we talked about, I, I don't know. I think actually we talked with Jimmy. You know, today it seems like everyone's, they're teaching a lot of, uh, from a pitching side, varying speeds and horizontal and vertical break of the same sort of pitch. So yeah. the slurve, the curve, the slider, the cutter, you know, a pitcher might throw all of them. And man, as a hitter, you know, you can spit on some things and you can, you know, be looking for other things, but man, like three miles per hour and two extra inches of vertical break on the same pitch that you just were looking for to your point, barreling it up. Like that's the difference between a barrel and like hitting it off the end and just kind of dinking it to right as a righty and like as an out versus driving in the right center gap. Now add the shift to it too. And then add the shift. I got a chart on you that where you've hit every type of ball. I know, man, it's, uh, insane. It's, it's, it's harder and it's getting harder and harder and harder, you know, and that's, I think that's why a lot of guys are either home run or strikeout type guys, because the art of hitting is a steeper hill is the steepest hill it's ever been. The art of hitting is now the steepest hill it's ever been. You have an, a new pitcher almost every at bat you're facing, you know, you're probably facing three pitchers in a four at bat game you have a tendency chart against you on every single type of pitch you've hit and put in play. So now the man and the, and the players have the charts in their back pocket. They pull them out all the time. It's just incredibly. And now you have a video camera if the umpire calls you safe, but the other team thinks you're out. Yeah. So over the course of a hundred at bats, I mean, it's got to account for maybe at least five, six less hits. Yep. And and so the you know the new the two the new two eighty, which was considered above average hitter, is probably the new two fifty. You know what I mean? It's a great point. And if you if you listen to some of the people, fans mostly who despise I think is the right word the current state of the game with respect to you know no one no one hits three hundred anymore. Batting champs used to hit three sixty, and they think it's all because guys don't care about their average. I'm sure that there's guys that don't care about their average that just care about home runs and that's it. But I think most major leaguers want to hit 300 or as high of an average as they can hit. And 
man, you just made a great point with respect to like you're you're losing three, four, five hits per hundred at bats because of instant replay or because of just facing more pitchers per game. Yeah. Specialists. That's do the math. That's yeah, that's do, 50 exactly. points. Do the math. It's like it's like I always say too. It's like nothing to take away from the old old school baseball, right? Like you look at the the forties, the fifties, the 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 pre helmet eras, the Ted Williams eras, the forties. Guys are hitting four hundred. Ted Williams four hundred six in nineteen forty one. The sacrifice fly rule was not even in Major League Baseball, and he had I think eleven sack flies that year. Would have hit four sixteen. Didn't even know that. <laughs> right. So how many of those pitchers? You know, back yeah. in the day when pride mattered, right? The pitcher would throw nine strong innings. Manager comes out to yank him in the eighth. He's ready to punch the manager in the face, say, get the hell back to the dugout. You're not pulling me. Manager says, go ahead, pitch the rest of this game, boss. Show me what you got, right? How yeah. many of those fastballs were 80-mile-an-hour fastballs right down the middle to Ted Williams on his third and fourth at bat? You know what I mean? To Mickey Mantle, his third and fourth at bat, you know, 82-mile-an-hour heater right down Broadway. Even if the guy's still throwing what he threw in the first inning, you're still seeing the same guy for the third or fourth time. Right. So you add all that up, nothing to take away from what, what yeah. happened in the past. But like I said earlier, the hill to hit, the art of hitting is the steepest hill it's ever been. You know, and take nothing away from how to do it now, but it's a different, it's a different game and there's there's different strategies out there. You know, now moves the conversation into the whole launch angle stuff, which people ask me all the time about all that stuff. I said, listen, man, it's just, it's just meeting the ball at the, um, the same plane as the pitch is really all it really is, you know, but I had this conversation with a dad too. I says, you know, my issue is not the actual launch angle. The, my issue is, is, is the fact that, listen, you're an employee for a multi-million dollar company, the New York Yankees. If your employer brings you into the office and says, hey, dude, listen, we need you to provide more power at the plate and hit more home runs in order to stay employed by our company. We're asking that you change the angle at which you swing by four degrees to produce those results. As an employee that's going to make millions of dollars, what the hell is your answer going to be? Yeah, of course. Like, Where do we, like, let's where do we start practicing this? Start yeah, exactly. <laughs> But the problem is, is they're implementing that into the amateur little leagues where these kids are not employees. They're not strong. They don't have the bat speed. They're simply trying to perform something that's they're not capable of. So it becomes counterproductive. Are you involved in coaching that level right now, Gary? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I coach all my kids teams, uh, 10, 7 and 6. And um, we really just focus on the basic fundamentals. I mean, that's the age where they have to. 100 percent. Yeah, what's your reaction then, Gary? Like when you see a coach at that level, like 10, 7, 6, little league, little league age, I guess talking about maybe theories that really shouldn't be in the head of someone that age with respect to launch angles. Cause I think the problem that maybe a little leaguer is going to hear when they hear about launch angle is think like, I just need to hit pop ups, which you're not trying to hit lazy fly balls at any level. It's not, it's not what you're trying to do. The goal, like you said, with launch angle is meeting the angle of the pitch. So if you're getting something that's breaking down, you're not, you know, at least the highest level, you're not trying to swing down on that pitch, right? Because it's going to result in a chop or you're trying to meet it so you can hit hit something with authority. So what's what's the reaction when you see someone trying to teach that, I suppose, at the lower level? I would, I would honestly say that that adult doesn't have enough experience watching young kids actually hit a ball. You know, you watch the average little league kid, they're going to miss underneath the ball eight out of 10 times in a normal batting practice pitch that's lobbed down the middle. You know, I've been doing lessons for 28 years and 
I would say 90 95% of kids that get into the cage for their first 20 swings have a hard time getting on top of the ball, hitting a ground ball. They pop everything up or they completely miss under it. You know, so you ask yourself, why is that? Well, it's because your, your hands are naturally going to drop under the ball. You're not strong enough. Yep. And, um, the bat kind of swings the kids at, at these young ages, you know? So, you know, as, as a young coach that coaches amateurs, you ask yourself, well, well, how can you mitigate against it? You know, how can you teach contact and make better contact? And the simple answer is, you know, Hey kid, get your hands up by your ears, aim for the top of the ball. And when you first start hitting for the day, make sure your first 10 to 15 are hard ground balls somewhere because, what you notice is that they most kids just completely swing under it or pop it up and it's 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 an out it's not it's not productive so if they, if the if somebody's teaching that to young kids i would just simply i say to myself this person just hasn't been around kids long enough to know what actually happens they're just speaking on theory which doesn't apply to these young kids yeah you, you know what's yeah. funny gary is uh, i just texted chris before this evening uh my son's doing fall baseball and oh yeah it, we didn't have practice tonight we have practice next week so he was like but my daughter had soccer practice so he i was like hey me and you we're gonna go out to the field we're gonna hit off the tee just he's yeah. gonna be five the end of september so super young but he loves playing he's shown that yeah. like he can he can do some things he has a good arm and he likes to swing it and we literally i let him just hit off the tee and he's flat, like he's hitting it hard, but he's like doing a 360 and all this. And I was like, hey, man, let's work on balance. And he's like, well, what does balance mean? And I showed him, I was like, just fall through and just like, I don't want you to fall over or twist. Yeah. And just like a simple, like a simple concept. And like he took a few off the tee and then he finally kind of got it where he was just like, okay, I'm not, I'm not falling over anymore. Yeah. And just like something so, I didn't even care what the result was with the ball. Of course. You yeah. know, just like, just the feeling of, Again, teaching yeah. the super, super basic. Like balance is actually probably a little more uh, involved of a skill for a more advanced for a yeah. five-year-old. Yeah. But like he he has the capability to do it. And just like starting super basic with the, with the young ones, you got to start. Yeah. You can't talk these analytics. Go to eight, no. nine, ten. I mean, for Christ's sakes, these guys need to be worried about playing hard, putting a good swing yeah. and like barreling a ball. And then and that's it. We, so we coach, so I tell all my coaches that at these younger levels, guys, we're going to coach this effort, not the skill. Sure. Yeah. So we're going to say things to these kids, like swing it as fast as you can, you know, get your, get your knees bent, get your feet straight, get your hands high and swing it as fast as you can. When you see a decent pitch that you think you can hit, when you hit the ball, run as fast as you can to first base. Okay. When you get the ball, throw it as fast as you can to first base, all your might. You know, so we, I tell the, I tell the coaches, dude, we're going to coach the effort because if, if you try to coach the skill, you're going to be left with incredible frustration. You're going to have a hard time being around these kids for, you know, for the time it takes for the season. You're going to have a hard time being around these kids for 10 weeks. If you think coaching the skill is going to produce, you know, understanding and results you know, under a certain age, I just don't think it works. And and I saw a guy on YouTube that taught me that had over a million views and, and his whole thing was coach the effort, not the skill. And I says, man, this guy's spot on. I like that. He's spot on because kids understand fast. Kids understand slow. 
kids don't understand hands inside the ball, you know, under maybe right. 11, 10 years old. You know, they now they approach Little League, you know, and it's like I say too, man, there's a reason the Little League World Series is 11 and 12 year olds. It's because at that time, now they can acquire the skills necessary to play a good brand of baseball. Yep. But prior to that, there's a reason there's no Little League World Series for under 11 year olds because they just don't have the skills and it's, it's not their fault. You know, and I, I think some some adults get super frustrated um, and it shows in their body language with young kids. But it's I don't know. I just kind of think your expectation has to match the kids age level. And if you can do a good job of that, you'll be fine with the young kids. And I, I'm fine with them. That's why I coach all their teams. But it took a while to really start buying into that theory and, and saying to myself, let me match the expectation level with the age group here. And if I can do that. I'm fine. I don't lose my cool. But if my expectation is too high, I can feel my blood boiling a little bit, like getting angry. And I'm like, nah, man, it's you, not the kids. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. yes. So we should probably get like we were talking about the uh, blood pressure, heart rate for the professional batters. <laughs> Maybe we should get that for parents coaching little league coaches. Yeah, for, for little, little league. Coaches. There's like a little there's like like an, some sort of meter over their head that shows. Exactly. Like, get away exactly. from that guy. He's about to explode. meter. How about parents in general, man? I'd love to. I'd love to have my own readings, like on just a Tuesday night. Yeah, I, I, yeah people ask me all the time too. They're like, dude, how crazy are they out there? I said, listen, man, I live in a town. I'm I'm not getting it yet. You know, some people warn me, dude, you haven't gotten to the levels where you're keeping score. You know, um, and it's super competitive. But I don't know, man. I'm just upfront with the parents, man. I, I everyone's pretty cool with me. Um, maybe some of it has to do with uh, you know my resume, and my respect levels, but. I feel I communicate well. I'm super easy to get along with. You know, I get it. Parents want to advocate advocate for their kids. Why why shouldn't they? I mean, if if a parents not going to believe in their kid, dude, I'm telling you, the guy next to you is not. You know, yeah. and it's and I, I get it, man. I get it from a I get it from a parent standpoint. They want it, they want what's best for their kid. Kids have a hard time communicating. That's all well and good, but I mean, I I think a lot of I think a lot of parents and 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 they just like to vent, right? And they just want to vent and be heard. You know, and if you kind of acknowledge that they're, you acknowledge their frustration, I don't know. I don't really know if they really are looking to start a major argument or, or prove a point. I think people just want to be heard sometimes, but I haven't run into that much, man. It's a pretty cool town. Where, where are you at right now, Gary? Are you still in South Windsor. I'm in South Windsor. Oh, South Windsor. Yeah, up okay. Right near uh, UConn. Isn't that, um, yeah. isn't that um, Pollock? AJ Pollock? Is that it? Yeah, yeah dude, he's from Hebron. He's about 20 minutes from yeah. us. Yeah. Um, Our old teammate George Kyle Sumple, too, from Siena. Okay. He played at That's Northwest cool. Catholic, but he's South Windsor guy. Yeah. Yeah, really? I mean, hey, my my uh we were just talking 2 weeks ago to Joey Serafin, but my oh, yeah. American Legion state title, Rotary Field, man. Great memories there. Yeah, that's South Windsor, man. Heck <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, Rotary Field. That um <laughs> Yeah, uh the guy you was it Joey Serafin or Jury Surface? Joey Serafin. So Surface is different. I know him too, but Serafin yeah. was uh one of the better pitchers to come out of Simsbury in okay. I don't know the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, um George Springer's from our neck of the woods too. Oh yeah, Springer. Uh, yep. Forgot about him. Yeah. And <laughs> the he, current you know, major leader. Oh yeah. yeah. A lot a lot of people don't know this either. The the scout that signed Mike Trout lives in South Windsor, Connecticut too, Greg Mohart. Morart coached me on the Twisters for two years, and he's coming on the pod allegedly uh, sometime yeah, soon. His so brother Daryl or Greg? His brother Daryl or Greg? No, Greg's he, coming on. Uh, Greg is, yeah. Greg's the scout that signed um, Mike yes. Trout. That's great, what we want great, to talk great, to him about. 
man. Gary, after we post this episode next week, I want you to go back to an episode. If you haven't listened to any yet, go back to the Casey Fay episode. I want to say it's between like maybe five and nine, somewhere in there. Coach Scout Casey Fay has a great story on Mike Trout. He does? Oh, yeah. Like it's 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 worth a listen. It's a little bit of a longer episode, but for sure you'll enjoy it. So go back and, and give yeah, it a listen. I'll definitely, I'll definitely I'll make sure you guys text it over to me, man. I I love listening to that stuff. The the cliff notes are they they tried to they thought he might have been better hitting from the other side of the plate back in <laughs> yeah. high school. So there was some. <laughs> that, I mean, that's hard to believe, right? It's like yeah, you know, we're all like, what the I, hell? I, there's a legendary story about Bo Jackson with a similar situation. I played with a kid, Jeff Terrell. His dad was really high up with the Kansas City uh, Royals at the time. They picked Bo Jackson. They says, hey, listen, you ever batted lefty? He says, no. They so they're like, all right, jump in there, take a swing lefty. He hit the first pitch he ever saw in batting practice deep into the stands as a left-handed hitter, you know, with a little bit of an unorthodox swing, but it doesn't surprise you because there's legendary people that do legendary things, man. And it yeah, yeah. sounds like Mike Trout's one of those guys. Yeah. Well, I, there was a story about Trout. I looked it up after Casey told, told his story in high school, they did a home run derby at the end of each season and Trout senior year, they were like, you can't hit righty because it's just not going to be a competition. So they actually made him hit lefty in the home run derby against the rest of his team. And like, he had a good team, you know, there are other yeah. good players on the team and he still won, you know, he hit like nine out in the derby that's and, you know, man. was never a left-handed hitter, but that's, won hard, the derby that's ridiculous, man. I mean, that, that just goes to show you how, how, how talented some people are. They just hit the genetic lottery every single yes. number. Man. That's crazy, dude. So Gary, I wanted to talk to you. It's been a great discussion on, you know, hitting in general and, yeah, yeah. and the mental aspects of the game. But about your career, so you spent a lot of time in AAA and looking at your baseball reference. I mean, you had you had two really good years in AAA. Looks like Toronto, yeah. And then you actually went and played in Bridgeport after a really nice stint with with uh, the Cardinals AAA affiliate. Yeah, Bridgeport Bluefish, like independent league in the Atlantic League, and then got picked back up back to triple a and double a and then and then some foreign experience so like looking back on your career what was it were you just kind of like blocked on the organizations that you were in i think you said you were like primarily a dh um what's the story there well i mean you know when i got up to triple a i mean let me back up you know i kind of wore out my welcome with the philadelphia phillies um 2001 uh, was my third year in triple I mean in double A with the Reading Phillies. I hit 315. Marcus Timms beat me out for the batting title. Um I come in the spring train, the Phillies say, hey Gary, listen, you deserve to be in triple A, but it's not going to be with us because we have some first rounders that need those at bats. So we're going to send you over to the Blue Jays. This was 2002. Um I got traded for no compensation. I mean guys 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 joke they got traded for a box of balls. Dude, my trade was even worse. Zero. Nothing. I didn't didn't get traded for a beer, bro. I got traded for zero. No compensation. It's 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 in the baseball cube. Traded for no compensation. And so I crack up because um I went over to the Blue Jays triple A team in 02 and I was their triple A MVP that year. I hit 281. Just 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 Jason Worth was on my team, Orlando Hudson. I mean, we had a lot of good players. Josh Phelps, who hit 15 home runs in a 
the first half of the year. Then he went to the um, big leagues and hit a bunch of bombs. But we had a really, really legit triple a team that I, you know, I was the MVP on it. And um, there is just no room in the big leagues, man. I mean, I'm not going to go up there and take Carlos Delgado's spot, making $20 million a year, hitting 45 home runs, driving in 145 runs because, you know, some, some left-handed, you know, 5'10", 225 guy hitting 18 homers in triple a, it's, it's just not going to work. I mean, I kind of gone up there in DH, no problem. It's just it, the roster moves they would have had to make, the guys they would have had to pull off, the financial commitments. I just, I just don't think the stars lined up in those areas for me. I, I just, I really believe it. There was just other options, you know. Uh, defensively, I wasn't, I was a step slow in the outfield, so I was a guy that would have to get defensively replaced if I wasn't coming up to hit. So there's some fast guy that runs a six-five that they'd rather stick in left field late in the game that can catch that ball in the gap that I can't catch. Mm -hmm. And so when you kind of add all that up, I would have had to have a lot of stars align to get my, my time in the major leagues. But had I gone up there, I would have definitely hit. I mean, I have no doubt about that uh, because I hit at every level and I hit well, and I hit at the very top of the production, um, you know, all the team categories. I was at the very top, but I just, I just don't think there was a, a, a realistic position for me. And I just don't think the, um, the stars lined up, you know, I really didn't have that sponsor to say, man, this guy can really help our team and come up here and pinch hit or DH. And I, I just, I just think that, and then as time went on, I really started to believe that if my, my only opportunity to make money in this game was to go to Asia. And that's why I went because I was in my early thirties. Yeah. How many seasons Japan, right? Yeah. I played two seasons in Asia um, I got over to Valentine on the final season, 2009, which was really a super cool story. How I, how I, how it actually materialized. It's really cool. You know, Tell it um, to us. Yeah. yeah. So how'd it happen? Let's go. <clears throat> so what happened was <clears throat> 2007, it was my final triple a MVP with the, with the, um, Philadelphia Phillies. Now I had go before the 2007 season, I walked into spring training with the Phillies as a 31, 32 year old triple crown winner in the organization. I mean, imagine this, right? You're, you have two, you have the all time home run record in double a, um, you're 32 years old, you walk into spring training and you are the triple crown winner in the entire organization, rookie, single a, double a, triple a, and there's four or five groups of guys. So you're looking at about 125 guys and you walk in as a 32 year old, you're the triple crown guy, your picture's up in every category and guys are just looking at you like, dude, why are you in our clubhouse? Like, why aren't you in the major league spring training? You're saying to yourself, you guys have no idea how this business operates. They just don't reward you because you had a hell of a season. Like there's gotta be a need and there's, there's gotta have somebody in that meeting has got to say, this guy can help us. You know, that's how it has to happen. So, I go up to AAA that year and tear the cover off the ball and accumulate my second AAA team MVP. I wasn't league MVP. I was team MVP. At the end of the year, <clears throat> this was when the Philadelphia Phillies were rebuilding their AAA stadium in Lehigh Valley. And I had called Steve Norieta, who's the minor league director. And Steve was like, Gary, we'd love for you to be our first baseman in the new Lehigh Valley season in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We built a brand new stadium. Boom, boom, boom. I'm like, he says, man, it sounds great, Steve, but you know, I'll be honest with you, man. Is there anything on the major league side of things for me at spring training, anything? He's like, nah, man, you'd be surprised the, um, 
you know, the opinion gap between the big leagues and the minor leagues. And I'm like, all right, well, I says, all right, I'll get back. So, I, you know, I called them back. I says, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, man. I'm not, I'm not going to come back. I says, I, I gotta, I gotta try for more here. I've been in this AAA four years, two MVPs, you know, and I, I get it. I get this as a business, but I'm going to take a gamble and I'm not going to come back, you know? So anyway, I signed, I called these international agents. This is a crazy story because I just met with my agent today, Brian Greeper, who was here visiting some yard goats and he's going up to the AAA Red Sox to go catch some of those guys too. And um, I says to Brian at the time, I says, Hey, Brian, you know, I need to get some international placement. He had contacted me prior to my career. So I called him again. And I says, Brian, what's your fee for placing players, you know, in Asia? And he's like, well, we, we, we charge 6% of gross earnings. And I says, you're not worth 6% to me, bro. That's bullshit. And he's like, well, what, what, he goes, what, what the hell do you mean, dude? What, what, what are you talking about, bro? I go, you're worth 10% to me. And I said, you're going to cross off any bozo that does what I do. You're going to find me a job, bro. And I'm going to pay you 10%. You're not worth six to me. You're worth 10. He's like, dude, you're the smartest SOB I've ever worked with. <laughs> so I wind up in Taiwan that year. I, in 08, I wind up in Taiwan. He's like, dude, I got you a job in Taiwan, you know, 8,000 bucks a month plus incentives. And you got to go out there and hit the shit out of the ball and hit some home runs. And then on the back end of it, we'll try to market you to Asia, to Japan. So while I'm out in Taiwan, you know, I'm this, there is emails and stuff like that. I mean, I'm emailing Bobby Valentine like crazy. Hey, Bob, I'm a Connecticut guy. Listen, I can help your team. I'm out here in Taiwan. I'm banging the ball. And Bob's like, yeah, I got my eye on you, man. We're full this year. Um, you know, let's see what happens as the season rolls forward. And I just keep emailing him, dude, I can, I can help you win. I can hit, I know I can do it. Here's my resume. And he's like, all right, well, listen, man, find a way over here. Once the season ends, I'll showcase you in front of the front office. And, um, you know, maybe we can make it work. So I end up getting a plane ticket to Tokyo at the end of the season. And now here's my chance. And so I go through the whole workout, everything, everything you can possibly imagine. And Bob, Bob's like, Hey Gary, how, how do you think you did? I said, listen, I know I can help you. I, I can barrel up anything. I ripped the ball in your tryout. You know, I made all the plays. I says, listen, I, I got the confidence. I know I can do this. So he's like, all right, well, let, let me see what the front office thinks and I'll get back to you by Christmas. So he calls me, he calls me around Thanksgiving and he's like, dude, they didn't like what they saw, man. I'm like, are you kidding? He's like, no, he's like, they didn't like what they saw. They don't think you can cut it here. I says, man, all right. I says, well, he's like, but give me a couple more weeks. I says, all right. I says, uh, you know, anything you can do, Bob, I appreciate it. So he calls me back around Christmas. He goes, dude, he goes, how close are you to a fax machine? I go, it's right down the street. I can give you the number right now. He goes, get to the FedEx, give me the number, sign this goddamn thing as fast as possible. I negotiated the whole thing for you, and um, we'll talk numbers later. I'm like, you're kidding me. So I'm like crying in the kitchen with my wife. I'm like, holy shit, we did it, we did it. So... It was like it was like one hundred and fifty, one hundred and fifty thousand, one hundred eighty thousand dollars with like a fifty thousand dollars signing bonus, all these incentives, and you know my wife and I are crying, dude, and we're like, oh my god, we did it, we signed it, we signed it as fast as we possibly could, turned it in. He's like, dude, you got to meet us in Okinawa on like January 29th. I'll set you up with the travel agency. He's like, you you you're you're on the team. So I couldn't believe it, dude. It was like it's like the ultimate story. So I sign the dot, I sign it, I send it in. 
the numbers were a little off. They lowered the signing bonus a little bit. They fiddled with it. I didn't give a shit, man. I was like, dude, I'm playing in the yeah. big leagues in Japan. It's 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 ten times the money I've ever made in the states. It's the major leagues, and I don't give a shit what has to happen. I'm going. So then I figure out that when you play in Japan, they fly you first class. Oh, so right. now they put me in contact with this Los Angeles travel agency that has only first class tickets for their players. So I'm like, holy shit, this is pretty cool. So then my brain starts spinning and I'm like, well, shit, I want my wife to fly out. I want my brother to fly out and I want some family members to fly out. So I trade in my first class ticket for the value on it. <laughs> so I end up, flying, I end up flying like economy coach and then had another like 16 K in travel voucher tickets. So I flew over the whole damn team to Japan That's awesome. on those, on those first class ticket values because they had to schedule it last minute. So they paid out their ass for them. And, um, we had an amazing time out there and, um, you know, you could see my side. I really didn't have a great average, but I had four home runs that were so epic. You know, they're all over YouTube. One of them's against uh, Tanaka. And at the time I didn't even know who the hell Masahiro Tanaka was. I'm just getting up there another game. And he was like their friggin', um, you know, young superstar looking for a way to the States. And I end up hitting this epic home run off him. That makes it one-to-one. And the, the funniest part of it was, was when I came home and retired, I see on SportsCenter, this guy signs with the New York Yankees for $150 million. And my phone starts blowing up. It's reporters from New York City newspapers asking me what to expect from this guy because I'm one of the only Americans to hit a home run off him. And did you respond? Saying, did you actually respond oh, and yeah. give him some shit? You know, I, I I'm I'm never going to tell anybody in the media. I'm never going to talk trash. That's never something that's going to come out of my mouth. I'm going to operate with class and I'm going to protect fellow ball players. I don't care if I hit a home run off you or not. You know, so. I just basically was like, man, this guy is going to be a star if he applies, you know, if he if he absorbs the coaching that's needed to succeed around here and he can adapt to the culture. His stuff is good enough. He'll be a star, you know, and uh, I just kind of left it at that. I says, you know, you know, the home run I hit was just simply a pitch he maybe left out over the plate and I made a good swing on it. You know, I wasn't going to I'm not going to be like that that guy that talks a lot of smack. You know, I just kind of I use humility, you know, but uh it was really cool. It was it was really one of the coolest moments, and I didn't really realize how big it was at the time until he came over here, and people reference it all the time, man. That's almost like that's what they do when they when they know my name. They're like, "Man, you're the guy that hit that home run off Tanaka, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> it happened, dude. It that's happened, awesome. and it was cool. <laughs> it was the coolest, you know, 16 second around 20 seconds around the bases I've ever ran. It was it was euphoric. You didn't insane. Scott rolling in at that point and sprint." Oh, I mean, it was, it was just like out of body. It was like, yeah, it was, yeah. you just can't believe how loud a stadium is and how, how much intensity is, is in 50,000 people just at the top of their lungs. And you're the guy that caused it. It's really cool, man. It's, it's crazy, dude. We were talking to a guy I played with, uh, in the NECBL a couple months ago, Andrew Albers. He yeah. made it to the bigs as a pitcher with the Twins and the Mariners, and I'm forgetting the third team. But he played out in Japan for a little bit. We were talking cool. to him about his experience there. Oh, yeah. And he said the cool thing was, like, not only is the crowd raucous, but it's very respectful. So, like, he was saying when whatever team is up, 
those fans are then able to stand up and like chant for their guys. And then when the inning ends, yeah. essentially the other, the other fans, for the other team get up and chant, but there's not like a lot of, I suppose, trash talking or whatever from the fans there. Like what was your experience there dealing with the fans? My understanding was the they have registered bands. You know, I always describe it as similar to college football. The, the scene in major league Japan baseball is that of division one college football. You have a registered band that sits in like the right field stands for the visiting team, left field stands for the home team. And when the visiting lineups up, they play that person's song. I mean, that's their walk-up song is whatever that yep. band is playing. And it's over and over and over again. So you better, <laughs> you better get used to that song. And if you're not hitting well, it ain't because of the song because they're going <laughs> to see playing the song. So you better get ready for it. And it's just, it's, it's loud as hell. I mean, these people are making, silhouettes on bed sheets um of your face your name um you know hearts on giant towels they they just care man i mean they just have a passion for the game and a love for the players is a lot higher in intensity level than it is here and i think part of it is because the culture there is very um is very proper during the day um and that's their outlet, you know, to go to the stadium and be loud as they possibly can be for three hours is their outlet. Mm -hmm. And so I think that has something to do with it, too. Plus, they, they don't have NFL football. They don't have college football. You know, they baseball is their thing. You're just you're just the movie star in that hometown. You rarely pay for things. People are always giving you things. And, you know, if you're the hero of the game or you do well, you're 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 the superstar, man. And it's pretty cool. You know, you kind of live in those, you, you kind of crack up because you're just a regular guy, but yeah. they treat you like you're a movie star for that time you're there. And it's, it's worth soaking up, man. I saw, I, yeah. I don't know who the guy is over there. It's like the big superstar right now there, but he's like, he came like out of like the tunnel and they're playing his music and he had like a cape on and these ridiculous, <laughs> like awesome sunglasses. Oh, yeah. And he takes it all oh, off yeah. and like gets his helmet on and go hit. I'm like, this guy's in the middle of a game. Like, <laughs> like a wrestler oh, yeah. entrance song <laughs> oh like, yeah it, like living it up I'm like that that that's pretty sick there was a guy i think his name was shinjo that played on the mets and he would he would he was a he was like a um he was that guy in japan he he'd like come to the game on like a zip line that was like connected from the dead center <laughs> field scoreboard to the back of home plates <laughs> And then, and then he'd come flying down on a cape, like on a, um, you know, like a, like a Costa Rica zip line or something. Yeah. And the fireworks all going off. They'd announce his number and he's got his hair flying in the back. People ate that shit up, man. I mean, that's like, it's like literally Tarzan coming into the game. I mean, it's bonkers, man. That's it's sick. bonkers. Cause there's a, there's a huge like anime following too. So they have like this cartoon uh, character infatuation over there where there's a lot of comic books at the local 7-Elevens and this and that. So they, if, if you're smart and you market yourself well, you you got to play into that a little bit. Get your anime guys, character they, and like like comic books and all that. Yeah, and there's players that that soak that crap up, man, and they play into the crowd like that. It's, it's, it's worth taking a look. It's fun, man. It's fun. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing experience. Make a buck yeah. playing. Yeah. Got to make a buck outside, right? Hell yeah. Exactly, man. I, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wanted to do like, I was an artist, like I told you guys before. And, you know, there was, there's always been a part of me that has wanted to create some sort of baseball character and kind of get it out into the mainstream, you know, as an artist. Uh, but 
you know, everybody's got ideas they always think about. You know, it's just how many of them do you really want to bring out? You know, here's one right here. It's called the beer exactly. bowl. It's been a bit, Jake. It's been a bit. It's a beer bowl. It will be on the market one day. Just wait. There you go, brother. Someone will buy it, man. It's this is America, man. I mean, I'd buy it. Yep. I'm trying to make it. But. <laughs> so, Gary, this has been an awesome conversation. Like, like everyone we've had on, especially recently, I feel like we could we could talk about this stuff for hours. Um, oh yeah. We, I think I think we'll transition into the the coach's corner and Hennep and Hall segment. I don't know if this is a coach's corner ep- or story, but I told you I had to hit you with something that Jimmy said I had to ask you about. I, I see kids in the background. I don't know if this is like a PC story, but midget wrestling, man, what's the story? <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's actually a great story. Um, you know, I got no problems talking publicly about it. Um, and when we were in Reading uh, just last week, a couple of people brought it up because it it had an impact, you know. And that's when people can remember something that happened twenty years ago, it has an an impact. And I'm going to give you guys the story. So we basically clinched the playoffs in, in the Eastern league and double a to make the playoffs. And prior to the game, we, we hear midget wrestling that night. Okay. And it's down the left field line. So we, we win the game. We're celebrating in the clubhouse and we realize there's midget wrestling in the, <laughs> down the left field line. And our, 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 our clubhouse is, is down the, down the right field line and back of first base. So we realized the crowd is still all in the stands. There's about 10,000 people still at the stands watching this midget wrestling go on and the lights are all on, but we're in the clubhouse celebrating and the music's pumping. The guys are shotgunning beers left and right. For some crazy reason, man, people just start chanting my name, man. Cause I was like the <laughs> comedy guy and they're like, Bernie, Bernie. so, you know, Peer pressure was my thing, man. If you gave it to me, I don't care what you asked me to do. I'd do it because I was a team player. I didn't care. <laughs> Plus you're 25, so you're invincible. Yeah. So I go flying out of the clubhouse, and I see the ring for midget wrestling. So in a dead sprint with my full uniform on, I'm, I'm running to left field like this, just flying. And the guys behind me are following me. Crack! I can hear them all cracking up laughing. I literally jump into the ring under the ropes. I jump into the <laughs> ring and I pick the midget up, dude. I pick this dude up and I, I spin around like three times and the whole crowd is screaming. They think I'm in on the act. Dude, I wasn't. I literally just got instigated by my teammates because we won. And I'm like, dude, I'm not going to disappoint. I pick the guy. I spin around like this and I fall backwards like the, like the old suplex move. And the dude just smashes on the floor. <laughs> Picks, you know, picks me up and throws me into the ropes. I run off. I hit the ropes, you know, like like I'm playing into it. And then the guy, the guy clotheslines me, and then I go down to the ground. And then everyone's screaming my name, like yeah. <clears throat> so what happens is, is the 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 guy realizes that for some reason he just he just kind of got shamed. He's like, I'm no longer the star of the show. That's actually what I think happened. He goes flying out of the ring. And just walks out of the whole event, just pissed. And we're just cheering. The guys are yelling, yeah, Barney, yeah. I'm high-fiving dudes. I leave the ring. And so we're celebrating. It's 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 hilarious. I mean, people are talking about this the rest of the season. And I'm I'm just like, oh man, that was wicked fun. So anyway, we get to the yard the next day. 
And the general manager of the, of the team at the time, Chuck Domino, he comes into the locker room. He's like, hey, Bernie, man, I need you to see you in my office. I'm like, oh, shit. He's like, dude, I want you to hear this voicemail I got this morning. And he plays it on his voicemail recorder and it says, uh, it says, yeah, this is, uh, you know, attorney Joe Smith representing one of the midgets last night. Um, supposedly uh, one of your players, uh, number 21, Gary Burnham, uh, body slammed my client. Uh, he wound up in the hospital, uh, you know, with some injuries to his back. Um, we're going to be seeking compensation for the medical bills and the punitive damages. And if you can, uh, please have uh, Mr. Burnham give me a call. Here's my number, you know, and then boom, hangs up. So I'm like, I'm like, Chuck, are you shitting me, dude? Like, is this real? He's like, no, nah, dude, this is real, man. So I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so um, at the end of the day, nothing really came out of it that I knew about. But when I talked to some people that were in the organization years, years down the road, they said they had to kind of take care of that call. And it was something I never knew about. But it was so goddamn funny in the moment. <laughs> The guy that wasn't was, actually hurt, right? He was just like, no, hell no, dude. It was just hell his no. pride was was shaken. That's right. He was supposed he to be the was star pissed because he wasn't no longer the star of the show, and some you know jackass minor league guy that just clinched the playoffs steals the thunder in the moment. That's why he. That's why the guy was pissed. And that's, an, that's incredible. It, it was an it was epic, dude. In the moment, you don't think it's epic, but as time goes on and people remember that. You're like, dude, that was a really epic moment, man. That was wicked funny. It was so funny, dude. It was a riot. I don't know. I've never really heard a, a crazier story than that, man. I mean, that's kind of up there. That I mean, is. Who the hell body slams? And think about it, who the hell body slams a midget at an event after a minor league baseball game? You know, with his uniform on. Now you're pretty dumb. You're you're pretty much acting like a complete jackass in the moment. You know, this I was mean, before cell phones. I mean, think about it. If it happened now, forget it. That shit would be all over YouTube, gone viral. You know? Well, that's what I was going to ask is like, it, I guess it's before like cell phones as we know them. There were probably flip phones back then in 2000. But like, yeah. you, you think there's got to be some sort of video floating around that someone had of that thing, but maybe not. <laughs> I don't know that. I mean, if, if, if I knew it was going to be filmed, then I would have never done it. But, you know, those were the days when, you know, you had to do stupid shit quick, you know, just to and you knew nobody had a phone or nothing. You know, then all the jackass movies came out, you know, which. But yeah, that was a typical minor league debauchery, man. And I was in the center of all of it and it was wicked fun. And I, I really believe that's why we won games. I mean, that's why we were a great team. That's why we won championships. The craziest people, the craziest group of guys I've ever been around, they win. I don't know why. Maybe it's a, a commonality of looseness, funness, but whatever it's worth, it wins. It's probably both of those things. I mean, we've had a lot of people on that have played in the, some of the majors, others a long time like yourself in the minors and and uh, in essentially like the major leagues of other countries, right? Japan and kind of the common thread that we've heard is you kind of get to that level and a lot of guys are playing for themselves. It's not really about the team, right? Like they're they're playing for their stats. They're trying to get to the next level, but then you get that mix and it sounded like that 2000 team had it where you've got guys that are actually still having fun and not too concerned yeah. with like maybe the business side of things and that's going to translate to wins. Exactly. And that's, that was us. You know, we, that was the same year. It's funny. You, we talked about the midget wrestling and Jimmy brought that up. That That's the same year I played with Pete Rose Jr. Who literally were in Al, Al, uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania. And he's inside the mascots uniform, you know, running around the stadium when he's supposed to be on the bench pinch hitting. And he's, 
he's inside the mascots outfit, you know, messing with the players and the guys and we're cracking up laughing. I mean, stupid stuff like that. I mean, th- those are the, those are the things you remember about your teammates. You know what I mean? And those are the reasons why you win is because, you know, there's a bunch of clowns that know how to stay loose and play good baseball. Yeah. So Jimmy was on that team with you in 2000. Jimmy wasn't, he wasn't on that team. I played with okay. Jim. Um, uh, he was on the Reading Phillies at one point, um, but I can't remember the exact year. Uh, and he, Jim played in Taiwan too, where I played. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't. And I was in spring training with him with the Blue Jays, I think in 02 or 03. I went down to a game when he was in Reading. Uh, yeah, I don't know what year I was young. I was with my dad. We go to see Jimmy and he comes up before the game. He's talking to us and he's like, Hey, enjoy yourselves. Keep an eye on the first baseman. He's going to be a star one day. And, you know, Ryan Howard. Um, oh, yeah. And that guy, that guy so hit 2004. That guy hit one of the longest home runs I've ever seen. And actually, Scott Burrell, or Burrell, I forgot you say his last Pat name, Burrell. was on a rehab assignment. Pat, yeah, Pat sorry. Burrell. Scott Burrell is a UConn, former From UConn Hamden, star. Yeah. That's where I'm thinking. Yeah. Pat Burrell, he's on, uh, he was on a rehab assignment. And he hit a ball like over the, I think there was a big Phillies sign in left center field. Oh, like, yeah. The scoreboard there. Yeah. Yeah. The scoreboard. Stupid. Um, yeah, that's a great story, Gary. <laughs> it is a great story, man. Um, you know, I also wanted to also touch on, you know, my cousin, Anthony, you know, and yeah. I know we haven't really brought his name up a bit, but, um, I'll tell you, I watched that kid several times play and I'll be honest with you. I, I really try to take a, an, um, an objective look and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm a family member of his, his grandfather, my grandfather, our brothers, there's a lot of minor league players in our family. And, I can't identify a better athlete on the field when he's on the field. I mean, that kid can run. He's got incredible agility moving left to right and, you know, foot quickness. He's got a cannon for an arm. He's been rated as one of the best arms in the Midwest league as a 23 year old, you know, he really started hitting for average and really started coming into his own, you know, with his hitting, you know, as he got more experience, you know, and, I just I just say to myself all the time, you know, that, you know, coming from Siena College, uh, you know, had he put up those same numbers at like a Vanderbilt or a Florida Gators, you wouldn't see an undrafted free agent. You'd see a, you know, a top five round pick guy. Yes. You know what I mean? And and I always I always believe that, you know, the, the players from the Northeast, there's a lot of great players. But unfortunately, the the the, the scouts are biased. And they don't see sometimes the talent because they just write it off as not amazing competition, you know? And I always look at Anthony and say, that kid could step into any major league team and hold his own right now, you know? Yes. And it's like, I tell him there's, there is a reason they put you in all those big league spring training games with the Cubs. It wasn't because you couldn't hold your own. <laughs> they put you out there because you're a great player and they, they know that when they put you out there, you do fine. You know, and he and he's the only guy in our family to hit a home run in a major league game, whether it's spring training or, or the regular season. And he had a first pitch fastball that he jacked over the center field wall um, in a major league spring training game. You know, so he holds the record. I remember him, it was him and Javi. Him and Javi did the same thing, the same game, right? They yeah. both went dead, dead center, absolute dead center, dead bombs. central. You know, I, I watch all of his bombs on his uh, his his Facebook. You know, when he posts them oh, yeah. for the. Uh, his Mexican league team there. Um, and, you know, I just, I just always say to myself, man, there's not a, I don't know a better athlete, you know, than him. Uh, he could step into a big league team and, and do just fine, you know? And, and uh, I just, I just wish him well, man. I think that kid can play till he's 40 years old and, uh, 
if he takes care of himself, he's just going to have an amazing career. Well, you know, that's and- what I was going to say. The crazy thing, and Jake and I have both been following him since he's been playing pro ball when he was 22, but he's getting better and he's 34. Like he's still getting I know. better. He's probably playing the best he's ever played right now. It's unfortunate. He just, he got hurt a little bit ago, but I know he's working hard to get back for winter ball. Yeah. Um, yeah. Listen, he's going to keep doing his thing. We had him on a couple months ago. We're looking forward to having him back. But I mean, I remember when I think he was a, what Jake, he was a freshman when we were juniors. We played yep. with him for two years, two years, two years behind us. Yep. And you know, like it takes a bit when you get to college to kind of come into yourself and, and actually start producing stat wise for most guys, at least. So like he was always his sophomore year had a very good year. I think he was like 280, 290, hit a couple home runs. But you saw it from the second he stepped on campus, the arm, the athleticism, the speed, the just the strength, the power. Uh, and then his junior and senior year, he was a monster. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you, man. He uh, he's just incredible athlete. And um, I just I just want to see him continue and just go all the way to the end, man. And, you know, until he until he feels you know, he's ready to, to do something else, but he's got a lot of years left in him. And, and, and I, I'm just, I'm just so proud of him, man, because it's not easy to be an undrafted free agent and last this long in a system that screams stop, you know, when Mm -hmm. there's never money invested in you, it's all on you to create your own resume and your own title, you know, and the only way to do it in his situation is through performance on the field, because players that are picked in the first couple rounds, they live on that title their whole career. I don't care if they hit 175. Oh, this guy's a first rounder. Oh, yep. we'll sign him. He's a first rounder. Right. Oh, well, yeah. This guy was a this guy was a second round pick back in the day. Oh, yeah. He's got the tools to play. You know, that that guy lives in that in that in those rounds his whole life. And so, people give that player a lot of credit if they want to get him if if they want to hire him to work for their team. You know, but in cases like Anthony, if he's not putting up the numbers, dude, they're not there's there's nothing to fall back on you can't say well i was an undrafted free agent i mean you're already you're already behind the eight ball in those situations but the kid has a long enough track record of success now to where he's an established successful professional player that can get a job really really anywhere he wants in new mexico you know he's el jefe yep. Yep. Oh, yeah yeah el jefe el jefe and, I, and that's why and that's why i'm proud of him man because it anybody that does this knows it's not easy to get that label man and he's got it as a successful productive guy that can that can do the job they ask him to do and it's not easy to acquire that label but he has it now yeah yeah which is like it's like a made man dude he's a marked man now you know he's not a bozo he's he's the real deal we had a good conversation with him uh that was a while ago he's one of our good buddies too i mean i grew up he went to montville i went to east lime so you did um we kind of got him you know when he was thinking about going to college like hey sienna and got him in there and I laugh because I, I texted him probably like a month ago. I do a golf tournament in November and his dad and his uncle started going to it a couple of years ago. And when they're cool. the two of them are together, it's like, Anthony, I know what you're going to be like when you're like 55 years old because it's like, <laughs> I can see it. That's um, cool, man. I was like, Hey man, are you going to come do this golf tournament? He's like, dude, I'm still working out. I'm still, I was like, Oh yeah, sorry, dude. Like, yeah, keep, keep playing. I forgot. Like, we, <laughs> Please continue to play baseball. We'll be the degenerates playing golf and reminiscing yes, about your awesome stories. Uh, but yeah. when you're ready, the slot's open for you. That's cool. Does, yeah. does Tony Mazzarella ring a bell, that name? Tony Mazzarella? Left-handed pitcher from East Lime? No, it doesn't. No. I went to, I went to Clemson. 
Oh, okay. So I don't right. maybe maybe ten ten years my my senior. Yeah, he was he was much before you. Um, so you probably wouldn't remember him. Donovan, Don, Todd Donovan was the big yeah, East Lime guy. Mar- he was a what, Marlins guy. Marlins guy. You know what? I don't know who the hell he played for. I thought it was Padres. Yeah, maybe. I think it was a Padres for a long time. Yeah, yeah I think he scouts now and stuff like that. Yeah, yep. Yeah, Matt, Matt Harvey's from your area too. Yep, Harvey. Yeah, there's a big there, dude. Southeast. We talked about it with Seraphin actually a couple weeks ago. Legion, early late '90s through probably like '05. Man, there was some serious talent in Connecticut. Oh yeah, Brooke, Brooke Fordites was kind of the starter of all of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He was back in the mid '80s. Yeah, remember that name? That was a big one. So Jake, I'm thinking we skip Coach's Corner because that was a great story that Gary told and maybe at we close with just the one that I told you I wanted to tell and get your reaction on because I was yeah. thinking of something that might parlay with whatever the hell midget wrestling was going to be and I that kind of what Gary said was what I was sort of expecting well Ga- Gary, Gary, we Gary honestly gave like four coaches corners I think yeah that, are, yeah that were awesome so and honestly I don't even want to tell this because it can't follow Gary's but I'll tell it anyway so Gary we close with just a story of our college days we had two guys that lived with us that weren't on the team. So one of them was our buddy Cags, Matt Calcagni, who was the team manager slash strength coach slash intimidator slash whatever the hell you wanted him to be. And then our buddy Alex May, who didn't play a sport, uh, but just kind of linked up with us like from orientation freshman year and was close with everyone on the team and ended up living with us. So Alex always had kind of his own things going on, but one of the things he got into forget if it was like junior year or so he started boxing he's from new hampshire and he started taking boxing like classes and lessons like over winter break or whatever so we would always mess with him you know like he was maybe a little like skinnier than than the guys on the team maybe not as strong but he'd be like yo i know how to box like you know let's go so we had he had his head he had the headgear and you know two sets of boxing gloves so one night it's like a saturday it's just the guys hanging out we had a few and we're like, you know what? Let's do this in the middle of the townhouse, like in the middle of the kitchen. And we just started having three round boxing matches, like timed, like three minute rounds. And I think the first one was me versus Alex because we were both giving each other shit. He was saying he could knock me out. And I was like, you're crazy. So we put yeah. the headgear on and the gloves and just went at it for nine minutes, three, three rounds. Um, no knockouts. Some solid punches landed on each side. And there is a video of that floating around somewhere. Yeah really stupid and dangerous in hindsight because like there are counters everywhere if someone did oh, yeah. get knocked out like your head's gonna hit a sharp edge or the wall yeah um jake though do you remember our six seven first baseman boxed the, the next match who the hell did he fight was it cahill <laughs> i can't remember that's but... funny i mean that's a riot guys this is in an apartment somewhere right yes yeah, pretty much i mean this <laughs> is and like a what like a like a 600 square foot like spot not not even like a 300 square foot spot it yeah, was kind of like what 20 year olds do man this is normal man i love it it was this a little street fightish like so yeah the counter was one part of the ring and then it was just the rest of the baseball team circling up on the other side and we were just we we're just fighting and like i remember after each round i had one of the guys was like my ring guy like they'd come up and like yeah. put a towel on me and start talking to me about strategy and then they'd ring the bell and i'd get back in there that's so uh, funny, yeah man. Fun, fun Saturday. That, that is fun. That, 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 that cracks you up, man. I know. Because it's like, you just, those are the things you do, man. I mean, those, those help teams win championships, man. As crazy as it sounds. 
Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. the truth of it, man. That's a lot of fun guys. I mean, that, yeah, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> Dude, that's good. I totally forgot about that. So nice, uh, nice Hennepin Hall, tales of Hennepin Hall, man. Yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah. the year we won the 2001 Eastern league championships, uh, we had a ping pong table in our living room, you know, and, every, and after every game, it was just ping pong matches and parties, man. Yeah. And that team won the 2001 Eastern league championships. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yep. Screw the furniture. We went to sporting goods store and got a ping pong table. Yep. Yeah. Parties at our house after the game. You know, I don't know. There's some magic to it. <laughs> Going to the ship. Let's go. Play That's some ping it. pong. Yeah. Well, Gary, this was awesome. Um, we we never met before this pod, and I think you're only the second guest we've had that neither Jake or I have ever met or really had like an actual connection with. So we really yeah. appreciate you taking the time to come on. It was an awesome and interesting discussion. Uh, and would you know love to stay in touch? Have you on again at some point in the future? Yeah, my pleasure, man. I appreciate you guys. Um, I'm totally supportive of what you guys are doing. Um, this is this is definitely cool to kind of have people kind of express themselves and have people listen to their stories. Um, you know, I do know, and I tell my kids all the time. You know, I I live this life alone, man, in these obscure towns with none of my close loved ones by my side. You know, so a lot of my memories are really my own, you know, my wife's always like, Gary, you got to put them down on paper because, you know, someday when you're not around, these stories are just going to be with you. And to have the ability to have these podcasts and have people on here, you know, gives these people an opportunity to just kind of connect, man, and let people know their personal stories. And I love listening to them. And, uh, you know, I hope people love listening to this one too. I think that they will. I enjoyed it. Couldn't agree anymore. And you're not the first person to say that. It gives us an outlet for people to kind of like, hey, we never met and we kind of hit it off and there was no awkward, weird, whatever, maybe some yeah. technical difficulties on my side. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, man, totally appreciate it. Great meeting you. We'll keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. If there's anything I can do for you guys, if you have any sort of golf, whatever's outings, anything, just hit me up, man. I'll be there. It'll be a great time. I'm, you know, I'm one of the guys and I love supporting people that support me, man. And, and you guys have been great. And I just wish you the best moving forward. And make sure you text me, you know, the podcast links as you have more guests on here. And if you need any guests, just just ask. You know, I got a lot of guys I can I can forward out to you too. Appreciate that. We're gonna take you up on that. Take you up on it, and we'll send we'll send some beer bowls once we get them in production. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's it, man. Man Pepper, episode twenty. Thanks, Gary. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Gary. See ya. Thank you. Yep.